Jennifer Fraser is author of The Bullied Brain, Heal Your Scars and Restore Your Health. She has a PhD in comparative literature and The Bullied Brain is her fourth book. She draws on medical, neuroscientific, and neurobiological research to examine what happens to brains that are bullied and abused. Jennifer is an award-winning educator and works as a coach, consultant, and international presenter. This podcast is a dialogue that works in the first season like a coaching session. Eric shares his childhood experiences of being abused, and Jennifer discusses the implications for brain and for recovery. Our goal is to use Eric's childhood abuse like a case study as most people don't learn about their brains or about how abuse impacts their brains. The research is clear that the brain is innately wired to repair and recover when we know the harm done and the evidence-based practices to heal. This is the focus of Jennifer's book, but it comes to life in a podcast as Eric bravely walks us through the abuse done to him and his many strategies for healing his neurological scars. For all those who have suffered bullying, abuse, and trauma, join us to look at it through the lens of brain science and learn ways to repair the harm done. <laughs> Hi, Jen. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm, I'm laughing because of prior to hit recording, we were we were going back and forth about who should be taking the lead this time. And eventually, we're you know we're in we're on episode eight. You'd think we'd have this down by now. And and this is probably an episode we should have done, like in episode two. But I really wanted to break down what the diagnose what my diagnosis is. You know, kind of the etymology of ASD or anti antisocial personality disorder, and because. I hear people with, with, I see on forums and I hear people say when, especially in the autism community, well, you don't look autistic. Well, you know, I've, I've disclosed my diagnosis to a couple of people and, and, and it's been met with, well, I never would have guessed that. Well, and I think a lot of that is because like so many things, TV paints this picture of what a diagnosis is. Like a depression, for example, is somebody who can't get out of bed, doesn't function when we, we, at least you and I, I think would agree, you can have people that are functioning, Anthony Bourdain, phenomenal success, depressed and killed himself, committed suicide or, or whatever the right language is. So, you know, it's not, you can't say you don't look or you don't act. And and I just wanted to, I, I guess it's kind of a, obviously a, a bit of a sore spot for me. I don't know why it is, but I wanted to break it down. And, and Jennifer, my hope is you can take the med, the clinical language and turn it into more easy to understand language and I can tell you how it relates to where I was in my 20s and 30s and what I did to try to get to, to try to heal past that some of it I don't know that I want to move past and some of it I you know I, I think I have a lot more work to do so and I'm only going to read the criteria as it pertains to me there's more in the DSM-5 I'm only reading as it pertains to me so number one is an impairment in self-functioning goal setting based on personal gratification absence of pro-social internal standards associated with failure to conform to lawful or culturally normative ethical behavior. In English, what does that mean? Hmm. Read each one one at a time, and then we'll do it that way. Sure. Impairment and self-functioning. Goal setting based on personal gratification. Okay. So, I mean, other people might have goal setting be, oh, I want to improve or I want to attain this level of achievement or success. I, I want to get a degree. I want to get this particular job. I would like to marry and have a family. I, I'm setting myself the goal of painting the house this week. So it sounds like the goal setting is a little bit off 
or it's it's compromised in a sense by more of a almost like an impulsivity where goal setting really isn't correlated with gratification. Gratification is more sort of, I want that, I will take it. Or I feel threatened, I will act. You know, it's, it's goal setting is more like a, a rational exercise. You're using your prefrontal cortex. You're thinking about future consequences. You're weighing pros and cons. That doesn't sound to me like self-gratification, right? It sounds right. very different. And, and gratification would be something that us neuroscientists probably would place more in the limbic regions or the part that the areas of the brain, the regions of the brain that are more involved in satisfying an impulse or responding to a situation just in the moment, in an emotional kind of visceral way. Yeah. And, and, and I, caveat, caveat, neither Jennifer nor I are mental health professionals. And if we're butchering this, we apologize in advance. So, so take this with, with what it's meant to be, because that's what I took it as too, Jennifer, is I definitely... I have some goal setting where I would, I would, and, and much more now toward, in terms of my business, try to be focused on, you know, this is why I want to set this goal. When I joined the Navy, that was an impulse. I wanted to get away from Massachusetts. When I picked my job, that was an impulse. They were going to send me to Florida or California. I didn't care what I did. I didn't even do any research into what it was that I would be going to school for. I just knew that Florida is a long way from Massachusetts and California is even further than that, San Diego specifically. So, I mean, I mean, I'm in, at the time I lived in Massachusetts and in San Diego, California, it's, it's almost a diagonal line south from one end of the country to the other. There was no thought out process of, I'm going to join the Navy, get a great career and, and and, and, and it was really, this will get me out of Massachusetts. It was an impulse. It was impulse. I bought a Corvette. That was an impulse buy. You know, I would say though, I mean, I'm wondering if you could put it into the terms also of the sympathetic nervous system, which keeps us alive. So the sympathetic nervous system is, is how we respond to stressors or threats. And the typical way that is talked about, like by lay people like ourselves is fight, flight, freeze. You were what I would describe is having a very threatened life since you were little with, because of your parents' abuse. And so when given the opportunity, when you came of age, when an opportunity presented itself to preserve yourself, to get away from the abuse and actually put as much distance as humanly possible between your abusers and your own self, you, you took flight in the sense of maybe not even a negative. Like, the thing that makes me worried about these sorts of things is we say, oh, it's a disorder, right? Everything's a disorder. Anxiety is a disorder. Depression's a disorder. You know, anti-social beliefs are a disorder. It's like, man, not really. They're kind of smart. They're, they're your brain saying, look, this is strategic. We got to get out of here. This is, it's a miracle we're even alive. Like, and, let's go. And that was why I prefaced it. With saying some of these, I don't want to change. Even like volunteering for submarines is another one. Like that looks really cool. Let me, and that goes down. That that's going to come into the impulsivity down. You know, and under disinhibition as well. But it's all this. There's no. I'm getting better now, but very and it, very often it's I want to do this. And again, having traits like these do not mean you have antisocial personality disorder. It's it's. It's going to be all of these things put together 
and how and they have to negatively impact your life for it to be a disorder. So what would be interesting to me about this is one of the most famous breakthroughs in neuroscience came from a man named Phineas Gage. And Phineas Gage was a railway worker and he was a lovely guy, the nicest, most thoughtful, empathic, polite, like you name it. That's Phineas Gage. There's a terrible accident in the railway and a tamping iron got jammed straight through his skull and it only damaged the prefrontal cortex in his brain. Everything else was intact. So he had, he had no symptoms, not even like concussion system, symptoms, like loss of balance, or he couldn't remember, none of that. His brain is operating perfectly. He's missing the prefrontal cortex. It got damaged. All of a sudden, he no longer could restrain his impulsivity. He was highly emotional, incredibly rude, thoughtless, didn't care about the impact on other people, et cetera. So this is when neuroscientists started to get an understanding of like what the prefrontal cortex did what it was all about and how there might be different regions in the brain that have involvement in other aspects of our lives. So the reason I bring that up is when you're talking, I'm thinking, oh, this could be an antisocial issue if let's say you were married or you were a father of children or you had friends or others, colleagues, let's say, who were depending on you and you didn't care about that. Like your social bonds with them were much less than your impulse to do something you wanted to do, like get a red Corvette, drive cross country. You know what I mean? And then I can see that then being sort of, Ugh, this is kind of disordered conduct because it's not yep. factoring. And, and it was, and you know, because when I was in school and in, you know, in the Navy school, I wasn't really focused for my other, I didn't really give much thought to my students. I failed my first submarine board for my warfare device because one of the individuals on my board told me he didn't feel like I cared enough to, you know, to step in. And I, I don't remember all, exactly the language, but basically I didn't care enough about the other, the rest of the crew, you know, and I thought I'd been doing a pretty good job. I mean, I, it's going to sound horrible, but I didn't, I cared more. I didn't want the boat to sink because it would have killed me. Right. No, that, I didn't really, I didn't really think about a lot of other people. No, of course not. Think about your background. I mean, it's one of the things I'm pretty sure we've talked about this, but the idea that we somehow think that children are born with a full operating system on social bonding, social behaviors, how to act appropriately. No, it's all learned behavior. It's all culturally scripted. It's all what you learn primarily from your family and then at school. And, you know, another thing that I think is really relevant to this is we all know that we might have certain behaviors or thoughts or feelings, but we have to fit in. That's part of our survival. So we learn how to mask. So, you know, like an autistic person will exhaust themselves by learning how to mask. I have a, there's a family member that we have who has Tourette's and she has to work so hard neurologically to not show any tics. And then when she's at home and can relax and it's private, she's able to just stop that heavy duty brain work to restrain herself 24 seven. So, I mean, I think that's a part of this too, but I'm not at all surprised with your upbringing that you, all you really knew was survival. How do I get out of the boat alive? Because you just didn't have bandwidth for anything else when your life was so much and your psyche was so at risk as a kid. Yeah. Thank you for that. And I, I think what you just said about the masking falls under the absence of pro-social internal standards associated with failure to conform to lawful or culturally normative ethical behavior. 
I was proud of the fact that I didn't want to play the game. I mean, I would come out and say that I'm not playing your game. And that was when I was in, in the Navy, you know, I, 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 well, you know, lawful, I didn't want to go to jail. You know, I, I, you know, I'm not saying I was out there breaking laws. Right. I think I shared with you when I was in school in the Navy early on, I was, I would, I would loan money where I would loan a hundred dollars and then get $150 paid to me next payday. So that could be considered unlawful. I mean, I, I don't think there's any gray area there, but the, the culturally normative is you do play the game. You do whatever that game is, you do play it. Right. I mean, you masking is what it's called now, but to some degree, we're all expected to behave a certain way when we're in public, right? I remember my parents telling me that. I remember my parents trying to get me to stop reading books because I would bring books with me everywhere. I think we, we talked about this and I would read at a restaurant. I didn't care. I didn't even give, I, I never even gave it a second thought that anybody would look at me and think this was weird. I think, who gives a f what you think? And, and that's the part I don't want to give up. I don't want to worry about what people are thinking about me. It allows me to be very, very open about my beliefs on social media, LinkedIn, and everything, and even on these podcasts. Because if I was worried, I wouldn't share as much, right? Well, I mean, you know, it's all a matter of perspective as well. I mean, if you think of it this way, there's a lot of families where if your son wanted to bring a book and was bringing all these books home from the library and loved to read even at the dinner table, they would see that as a massive asset. They would be so proud, honestly. Like, Cultural norms, what's really interesting about them, and this is kind of what I wanted to talk about a bit today, is I'm really interested in our survival instinct, for example. So fear, let's use fear as a really good example. So fear is within us to protect us. And if we didn't have fear, we would probably not live very long, right? And yet it, it can be a very negative emotion that holds you back. And what's interesting to me is how you, your emotions are constructed by the culture you grow up in. So you could be a kid that associates fear with a positive, healthy survival instinct. You could be a kid who had it hammered into you growing up that fear was a sign of being a sissy or feminine or weak, and you could have really negative connotations with the emotion construct of fear. So, and maybe you end up being a daredevil and risk all about risk taking and showing off to people how courageous you are. So what I find interesting is navigating this space, which is how you really began this talk, like trying to think of, okay, who am I? Like, what is my authentic relationship to people, to the world, to my own self, to my work? What is my relationship that's unscripted, that hasn't been written by others, namely family, colleagues, profession. And and because that's where you get to something, I think, that's comfortable and authentic. And it's about, like, as you say, conformities, that's no answer. I mean, and even if you think about the loaning the money, it's like, all you were doing is what the stock market does. You know, <laughs> it's like, you were just earning money on money. That's what banks do. I mean, it's not illegal when they do it. Shouldn't be illegal when you do it, you know? Yeah, and I wasn't, there was no physical violence or anything. No, it's not like you're totally <laughs> So the, the next thing, <laughs> the next thing is empathy. Lack of concern for feelings, needs, or suffering of others. 
lack of remorse after hurting or mistreating another. We've talked about this with me. You know, the I do I worry more about getting in trouble with the law than I am about, oh shit, I shouldn't have done that. I worry more about hurting my dog than I do about hurting my next door neighbor. I'm okay. not gonna go out of my way to hurt my next door neighbor. No, but you just said the most important thing. When you were growing up, were you daily, weekly attacked by out of control vicious dogs? No. No. So you don't have, you have empathy with a creature because your relationship and your coding, your scripting all through your childhood was positive with dogs. They are highly empathic, loving, caring, loyal creatures. Your parents, on the other hand, were like vicious dogs who attacked you daily, weekly, all throughout your childhood. So of course your associations with human beings have been so negatively scripted. You have learned all kinds of learned behaviors, learned responses, learned emotion constructs for very unhealthy relationship to other human beings, right? Not with dogs. It's as simple as that. So this is why I don't like that. I don't like the diagnosis or I'm just, what do I know? I'm not a professional, but I mean, just <laughs> in my childish way, let me say, what bugs me about the diagnosis is it's so simplistic. It doesn't factor in it, it's sort of like, oh, hey, Eric is this package. Let's look at this package. It's brand new. It's just arrived and it has no history. And oh gosh, we can diagnose that he's got these various traits. My goodness, Eric, you, you are this box. But it doesn't factor in how you became the box. It doesn't tell you that, of course, these are all natural responses to your upbringing and you can now do with them whatever you want. Like the diagnosis sounds like, hey, this is who you are. It's like, yes. no, yes. this is where you are on the trajectory coming from an extreme trauma, abuse, childhood. This is where you're at. You can do anything you want from here. And, going and, it's, and to that point, Jennifer, it's important for people to understand the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistic Manual, I think is what it stands for. But the DSM was never designed to be a clinical tool. It was always designed for coding purposes for insurance companies. It's only morphed into this thing where, where it becomes, you know, not only somebody's label, and I think labels are important because it helps, especially it'll get you the help you need, but it becomes somebody's identity. Like my diagnosis is not my identity. And that's why I want to unpack this. One of the reasons I want to unpack this is there can be people out there who are schizophrenic or you know, bipolar or, you know, whatever the diagnosis is, that's not who they are. That is something that they have. It is a component of who, you know, just like autism or Down syndrome, but it's important to know because knowing that I lack empathy and I can put words to that, I can study empathy and I'm never going to, I don't, and I don't necessarily want my heart to ever go, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that, but I want to know it's appropriate to say, not to say, Oh, well, great. What are we having for dinner? And because I've done that where somebody will tell me, oh, my mom died. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. What's for dinner? Or, or, you know, maybe not those words exactly, but that kind of flow where I didn't read the room. Like, Eric, read the room, dude. And most recently, and I, I chuckle about this because I, I should know better by now, but I'm like, well, why wouldn't your sister want to come have dinner with us? Why would they want to spend, you know, why would they want to hang out with their kids on Mother's Day? And I, I was... I'm still kind of confused, but I, I understand that, you know, that's important to them. 
but I asked because I really didn't understand. I'm like, why wouldn't they? I, I would rather be around two adults than a bunch of, you know, four kids. I mean, who wouldn't? I digress. <laughs> no, and I, I, what's really interesting to me is, first of all, empathy, remember, it's not sympathy. Right. So it's not where a person says, my mom died, and you say, that must be really hard. I feel okay. sorry for you. I pity you. That's painful. That's sympathy. Empathy is more interesting. And my guess would be you are very high on the empathy scale. And the reason being is because it was another survival technique. If you don't have high empathy, you don't make it in the kind of childhood you had. Empathy is the, the, a child's ability, baby's ability, like 40 minutes post-birth, they start to see signs of empathy. And that's because it's a survival technique of a human being. Human beings have to live in groups. So they need to know at a very early age, if they want to make it, what the powerful people in the room are feeling, what they're thinking, and most important, what they're intending. There is no way you would have had a career like you did and even put in a leadership position in the Navy if you weren't able to read people. You depended yeah. on your ability to read, especially dangerous people like your parents. I mean, life-threatening people like your parents. You had to read them to survive. You, you also said there's two types of empathy, right? I mean... Oh, I was going to say another thing about that. Okay, so your story about, oh, my mother died. I told a friend of mine who's a highly empathic person, but she's a nurse practitioner, so she's medical. She basically, if, for people who don't know, nurse practitioners are doctors. They write prescriptions for you. So she is heavy-duty medical training. So I told her this heartbreaking story of a family member dying of cancer for like 10 minutes. Like any normal human being who was scripted in a loving family, like, like my friend Lynn was, would have had tears in their eyes. At the end of my gut-wrenching story, she says to me, hmm, what kind of cancer was it? <laughs> that's my question. <laughs> that's, that's a medical person's question, right? It's like, and you know, I, I have a son with chronic illness, so I've seen 800 doctors over the course of his life, and he's 22. I've seen every kind of specialist you can think of. And I'm really good at reading them. And I know for a fact, the surgeons he has, if they saw him as this incredible child, this beloved child, this human being, this imagination, this creativity, this ethical center, all these amazing things that humans are, they would not be able to do surgery because they couldn't cut him open and start rambling around inside his body, right? It, and, and it doesn't mean they're not empathic. I think where we get really wise is harnessing our empathy to navigate social relationships, whether it's masking, whether it's understanding that you actually might hurt someone's feelings if you don't try and meet them in that place where they're grieving or whatever, or you, you just like you described, empathy is you going, oh, just a second, the parent's relationship to their children is different than what my scripting was. I, I can understand maybe that there's the only people parents would wanna be with are their children. That's how much they love them. Right. That's no, I don't actually, understand that, Jennifer. It's just I understand that that people some people think like that. I don't understand why they don't think like that. They feel like that. And you don't understand why, because you didn't have the benefit of 20 years of experiencing it. Right. You had 20 years of experiencing books. Do you still love books? Oh, absolutely. There we go. Do you still love to read? Yes. You still love to learn? Yes. OK. For 20 years, you carved out a space for love in your life, in a loveless life, in a very dangerous, loveless life. And you still have that love. It's not gone anywhere. 
it's still completely intact. But you can imagine, Eric, no, it wouldn't be me because I'm like you, I'm introverted and I love to learn, I love to read and I love books. But another person might say to you, how can you bear to stay home with a book when you could come over and have dinner with me? And you would just be like, oh my God, there's like no contest. (laughs) Give me my book. Doesn't mean you're not empathic or you have a disorder or any of these labels, you know, that we're trying to unpack and talk about. It's more complex. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my, again, my point for reading these is just to make sure people understand you can move beyond this. Like I I have had, you know, lack of remorse, mistreating others, you know, things like that. You know, it's usually it's not oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that to you. It's, oh my gosh, am I going to get in trouble? Right. You know, it, it's, and, and that I'm working on. I'm trying to improve that, right? And that's something I've been working on for years. It's why I'm working with a therapist and my, you know, and with my, and doing couples counseling is because I want to be able to understand. No, I'm just thinking the language is it, to me, it makes me almost feel a little bit like crying because you're speaking with the voice of a child and your child, all your child can think is, am I gonna get in trouble? Because getting in trouble means being beaten. Getting in trouble means being said, I wish you were dead, right? That's a child's voice. All I can think is, am I gonna be in trouble? It's pretty high stakes from where you come from. I hadn't thought of it like that. And then it moves down to pathological personality traits. And again, traits are not, I I, I, I I want to stress this over and over again, that this is not who you, this does not have to be who you are. No. Or you can take it and you can use it for good, right? So the, there's, there's four traits under antagonism called one is, you know, manipulativeness, deceitfulness, callousness, hostility. I've covered deceitfulness ad nauseum about how I was, I was you know, it was easier for me to lie than tell the truth when I was younger. It got so bad where I would, get physically ill because I couldn't remember what lies I told, you know? And so I don't, I don't bother trying anymore because it's just not comfortable. It's not worth it. And, but it took me a lot of years to learn that. And it took me, thankfully that one person, when I told him, Hey, I've been lying to you. And he met me with, well, let's start over. I imagine how different that would have been if he had met me in a very different way. Right. Because that was that was an opportunity that could have I could have had door slam in my face and very well could have gone back to the way I was. Yeah, that's a really great example of empathy in the sense that if all of us just take that moment, you know, and we hear someone else's desperation, we hear their pain, we hear this survival strategy and we don't judge. We're not judging them. We're just going you know, you just shared something huge with me. You're vulnerable. Let's, yeah, let me just open myself up to saying, okay, let's try this again from a different point of view. Like, uh, it's the kind of thing I strive for. I'm always like wanting to be more responsive and less reactive. When I catch myself being reactive, I'm like, oh, you know, press reset, start over, you know, it's, Yeah, something we all work on. I just want to say one other super fast thing that's really important about what you said. And really, it's at the heart of our conversations. And if everybody takes this away from every single time we talk, I think it's a huge breakthrough because we're not taught it enough in our society. All of us have neuroplasticity. That means all of us have, till the last minute we are on this planet, the capability to change our brains based on what we practice. Our brains are also impacted by environment. So choosing 
healthy environments, not toxic environments, and then putting into practice all the things that we desire and want to have in our lives. It won't be easy at first. It'll be awkward. It'll be hard. We have to keep working at it. We're going to make mistakes. The way the brain learns is by making mistakes. So every time you fall back, celebrate because you are learning. And that's all any of us can do. Yeah, and, and try, right? Like, I'm not going to use lying, the deceitfulness as an example for how you can use it for, as a strength because I really don't think you can. I don't think there's any any benefits to being deceitful. What about Manipula- white lies? Huh? What about white lies? You're, uh, you see, you see your, your friend or your partner in the morning and they look like hell, like they've been up all night and they say, I have insomnia. And you say, you look great. Yeah, no. <laughs> No, I, I remember my wife, when, when my wife was alive, she told me, what, what did she say? She said, you know, I think my clothes are shrinking in, in the dryer or something. And I said, are you sure that's what you think it is? Yeah. So no, I, I'm not very good at white lies either. Takes practice. I, <laughs> you know, and then we go into, I'm still pretty callous and I can still be hostile, but you don't have to be, right? Like I used to say, well, I'm just being direct and honest. If you don't like it, suck it up. But you can be direct and honest without being an asshole. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you you can, like, I don't have to change who I believe I fundamentally am. I believe fundamentally, I, because it's something I value, being honest and direct. I value that. I want it, I want people to be that way with me. That doesn't mean I have to try to make you cry, you know? Well, you know, it's really the most fascinating thing. I did this course, really in-depth course. Oh, God such a long time ago. Anyway, the gist of it is, and it'll come to me, it, it's from this great group in Australia put together by an Olympic athlete and his wife, and it's called Athlete Assessments. And it's teaching other athletes how to understand their teammates, as well as teaching coaches how to understand their athletes. And the goal of the program is all of us fall, and of course it's a generalization, but in general, we all fall into four different categories. And one of the four different categories is direct. Those athletes and those coaches, they don't want you to mince words. They just tell me what I'm doing wrong. Tell me how to do it. Tell me what you want. Like, why all this fluff? I gotta cut to the chase. Like, what do you want, right? That's the direct personality. There's three other types. One of them is a statistical research-based guy. So the coach doesn't say to him, hey, you know, your layup stinks, redo it. That's not going to be useful. The statistical guy needs to hear, oh, hey, research shows that if you go on the left side of your layup, you're much more likely to score, you know? And that that guy goes, oh, got it. Like, thank you. That makes sense to me. Another one of the personality types is the communicator, the glue of the team, the loyal guy, where you say to him, hey, you know what? I know you want to pass, But in certain circumstances, I want you just to narrow your focus and just take the shot yourself. It goes against your intuition, but just do it for me. It's going to help me feel better. You're going to be loyal to me when you do it. And the person goes, oh, got it. Yeah. How do I show loyalty to coach? You know, my guy, how do I do it? I take the layup, right? And then the final one is, I I think it's intellectual. They all have letters associated with them. They have all these different techniques and like traits. And when you read through the four personality types, it is unbelievable. And you get people to fill in like a questionnaire. And once they filled it in, it gives them who they are, like what personality group they fall into. And people start laughing because it's so accurate. It was put together in, I think like the 
30s by a psychologist. And instead of studying people who were showing manifestations of mental mental struggles and issues and mental illness, he studied people who were just regular. And it was a really way out thing to do. It's like, why would you study sort of quote unquote, because nobody's normal, why would you study normal people? And this is what he came up with. And I can't remember his name either. Anyway, sorry, obviously I'm having a bit of a low memory day. I'm, I'm gonna brush up on this for you for next time we talk. Yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna make sure I look it up and include it in show notes. But you know, where this relates to what, what I want to get want people to get out of this is if there's somebody who experienced trauma, take these courses. Like I have been, I have done so much self-education because that's how I learned is reading books and, and taking courses. But however you learn, you know, do it. Do do the work. You know, I've I've taken I've got an associate's degree in social work because I was trying to be squishier and newsflash, I'm not, but at least I have a better understanding of, of things. And you know, it 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 helps. And then there's disinhibition, irresponsibility, impulsivity, and risk taking. Again, these don't have to be negatives. I, Jennifer, I think I shared with you when we first met. I'm a ready fire aim guy, right? I'm not the guy, who, but in the right circumstances, you pair me with somebody who who's too much of who takes too long or or spends too much time in analysis. I'm that good counterbalance. You know, I don't have to be. You know, I don't have to give up all that impulsiveness, but I do need to rein it in. I do need that safeguard, which I didn't have in my 20s and 30s. Yeah. Risk taking is the same way. Risk taking risk can be entrepreneurs. You, you don't start a business if you don't have some sense of, of willingness to take risk. The problem is when you leave that unfettered, when it just runs, when it when you run rampant. So yeah. we're not asking you to give up what quality. And I think this is an important thing to stress because it's something I felt was being asked to me in my 20s and 30s. And, but I only know that looking back on it. I felt like I was being asked to stop being who I am. And I, and I just when I was starting to figure out who I really was. And I didn't want to give all that up. So F the man. You know, and when you're in the Navy saying F the man doesn't really work, especially, I mean, on submarines it did because we had so much autonomy. You know, get the job done. Who cares how it's done? Okay, you're not the the most liked guy on the boat, but you you're a damn good worker. You get stuff done. So I would, you're very efficient. That's great. That's what we need on submarines. But when it leaves that dynamic and it goes into the surface navy on the aircraft carrier, and it's much more of a social group and much more cohesion is even more important. Go figure. It, it, it my my failings my fractures were very very evident because then it wasn't enough just to be really good at what i do you know, you know i would argue that they didn't care about how good i was you know i one of my things i believe as i get older i just seem to see it more and more and i would be curious what your therapist would say about this in in the business you know as a professional whether he or she sees this because i feel like certainly for me in my life and what you just described it sounds like the same thing where just when we have kind of mastered, kind of we've, we've hit autopilot, certain, certain of us, certainly people that come from trauma, it's like the universe pushes you to take it one more step, but it waits until you're strong enough. It gives you, it lets you build a strong enough container so that when you come to that next level, you could see it on a spiral even, when you come to the lower level of the spiral, you're in, you're strong enough to be able to cope and you can open up yet another door. So that, you know, 
I mean, some people, because you're a risk taker, I guess, you took that leadership position, you went into it, it was pretty nightmarish and challenging and awful. And you had to see things about yourself that you didn't like, and you still survived and coped. You had to have a really strong container to be able to do that. So I just, yeah, I mean, even though I know that was a really hard phase, it sounds like it was like a huge learning experience in a positive sense, like next level learning. It was even getting fired right after I came out of the Navy and I got and I, I bounced through financial planning jobs and then I landed with a company that I liked, but I think there was in, in my heart of hearts, I knew I wasn't a good fit because they wanted to be a family. And I don't ever want to be part of a company that says they're a family. It just, yeah, I get a very visceral reaction, you know. And so I, I, I think even then going into it, I knew that's not what I wanted. So when they fired me, it was almost a relief, even though it was like, holy crap, I just got fired. Do you know who I am? You know, you can imagine, let's go back to this idea of emotion concepts, just as our final thing, because you need to go. The emotion concepts are so interesting to me. And just if anybody wants to follow up on it, it's one of the best neuroscience books I've ever read. It's one of the hardest ones I've read too, just to put it out there. So that if you, you know, jump into it and you find it really difficult, I had to reread all kinds of pages in it to get a handle on it. It's called How Emotions Are Made. And the neuroscientist is Lisa Feldman Barrett. And she's brilliant. Anyways, what I learned is, which I find fascinating because I'm a literary person. So you can't have an emotion. Your brain can't have an emotion if you do not have language for it. So you saying like, what really interests me is you're having a feeling, like a deep feeling, emotional, bodily reaction to the emotion concept, if we could call it that, it's not really an emotion, but the concept of family. For many of us, we, we don't have a kind of association with that word. When we hear the emotion concept, family, we hear support, love, care, humor, affection, trust, and you don't get any of those associations. Not even a little bit. <laughs> no. So you see, here's the difference. If, if I said to you, hey, I want you to join my company. It's a financial company. And we operate like torturers. You'd be like, well, at least I know what I'm getting into. You know, at least they're calling it like it is. There's no pretending. I understand torture. I know, I know how to operate and survive in that world. This is a good fit. The group you can't fit with is the one that calls torturing family. And, you know, you get a big, huge visceral reaction to that because it's, it's like, it's what I'm really trying hard to work on right now. Of course, I need to always make these podcasts all about me and everyone has to hear about what I'm thinking about. So what I'm thinking about a lot, because it's my next book, is the gaslit brain. And I think it's so interesting and we should be teaching people how not to have single emotion concepts for certain things. So I just wrote all about this. So my argument is, let's say I said to you, Eric, I'm going to give you the gift of a horse. You would be like, okay, lightning fast. Your brain would do a really quick file check gift of a horse. And you'd be like, whoa, gifts are the emotion concepts for gifts that are most appropriate in this moment are gratitude and delight. I am delighted, right? That's what I feel. And those That's are what you would feel. Well, <laughs> it's a whole different okay. animal. <laughs> well, okay, let's call it a dog then. But the reason I use horse, you'll see why. So just to remind everybody, Trojan horse is a code word for when you're given something that looks really great, but it's actually full of your enemy. It happened in the Trojan War. The Greeks 
built this big, huge wooden horse. They gave it to the Trojans. The Trojans were like, wow, this is a great gift. They partied all night long and they went to bed. In the, in the belly of this wooden horse were Greek warriors who got out of that horse in the middle of the night and slaughtered all the Trojans. So a Trojan horse is something that looks like a really good gift. In actual fact, it's your downfall, it's your demise, right? But so we have to teach people, like if you think of a child encountering an abusive adult, like a pedophile, a pedophile gives them a gift. The kid rifles through and goes, gift is associated with the appropriate feelings of delight, let down my guard and gratitude. This is a trusted good person. All my experiences have shown me that that's what I associate with gift. And so we're not, we don't teach children or adults to have this double sense of self or, or not self, but double sense of emotion, which would save them when they're being gaslit by a politician, by a boss, by someone they're married to, by a narcissist that they work with, you name it. They're able to identify because they've got a highly trained ability to go, just a second, my brain is going into the file folder, but the file folder might not be accurate this time, you know? So, I mean, it's really what, that's one way of saying the work that you are doing right now is, is measuring. The file folder tells me one thing, how accurate is it to my present right here, right now? The word family shouldn't make me feel sick, but it does. That's the right. file folder speaking. And, and, the, and for, for listeners, the way I'm working on that is because for, for a change, and this is new to me, I'm actively trying to spend time with my fiance when she goes to see her family. Typically, I, when I was married, I would find excuses not to, whatever. Even when I was dating, it was always, yeah, I don't know, I'm busy that day. But, uh, you know, you know, last week, you know, I went to Wisconsin and her brother lives there with his wife, her niece and nephew live there. So there was a lot of, just about every day we were doing something, you know, either dinner with her niece and her niece's husband, or we stayed over her brother's house. And, you know, I, I gave myself an outlet because, well, a couple of reasons. I'm not religious and she, her brother's a pastor. So she wanted to go to church on Sunday, but it was a great opportunity for me to say, great, you go to church and I'm going to go hiking for five hours alone. And you know, because that's, end of the day i need my alone time right i i do and so i you know she did church i did but you know but i still rose to the occasion and hung out with her family you know i'm not effusive i i'm not hugging them and and thankfully they they don't push issue you know why aren't you a hugger or whatever you know that's not you know we don't have enough time to go into it but that's another thing we're not teaching kids if you don't want to be touched you don't have to be freaking touched I know. And why is there this, oh, let me give you a hug all the time? Why? What? Why? Why do you need to touch me? Yeah. You know what? That's, it's a perfect ending because when I was in high school, there were three teachers who were pedophiles and one of their, and this is a typical, this is a textbook approach to, to get children is it was all about hugging. Tickling is another one that's used. So I got to the point where, and I had no idea that it came from this. I would, like if my mother hugged me, my body would have a very negative reaction. I would feel extreme anxiety and it would be very visceral, just like what you're describing. Even though I was programmed as a child to associate hugging with caring, loving parents, because of what was done to me in high school, I associated with very dangerous adults, very manipulative, very likely to destroy you. So, and they did destroy kids. So that just 
proves my point again and it proves exactly what you're doing which i find fascinating this idea like i think it's the most important thing to be able to communicate selfhood i need to go hiking that's where i find god up in the mountains right that's me and that and be yourself like how can you be in a marriage if you can't say that but i totally respect that you're going to church that's beautiful great have a great day i'll see you at dinner like how why is that so difficult anyway you gotta go until next time Yes, ma'am. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you for listening to The Bullied Brain. As a reminder, neither Jennifer nor I are licensed clinical physicians, psychologists, or mental health professionals. Everything we are talking about during this podcast is anecdotal as it relates to me, Eric Jorgensen. If you are looking for help or you would like to seek answers to your own questions, We encourage you to seek out a mental health professional in your area. Please do not try to do or overcome any trauma on your own. Thanks for listening.